Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, good to see all of you. I know a few of you. If I know you, raise your hand. If you think I know you, raise your hand. It is such a delight to be here with you today. And um, just to say a couple of words, uh, I love Matt Cassidy. You know I do. We've been friends for over 20 years. And uh, it's just a thrill to be here uh, in his place and also to bring a greeting from a sister church down in the southwest part of town, Austin Oaks. Thanks for praying for us. Our, our elders today are doing what your elders did uh, last week, what you all had last week, a prayer time. And I heard you all stoned each other. Is that what happened last week? Oh, that's okay. Story is getting a little bit of gossip uh, legs of it. No, no. I heard it was a fantastic story. And uh, so you're, you're here ready to, well, to listen to the Lord and just see what he would say to your heart. Now, I have to apologize for something. The notes in the bulletin are absolutely completely wrong. Um, And that's because yesterday when I was walking, speaking to the Lord, the Lord just changed my direction today. And and here's what I I said to myself, Grace Covenant understands worship. Y'all get that. You don't need to have me talk to you about worship. But there's another topic that I think is a topic that all of us as believers struggle with at some level, and that's the issue of being generous, being sacrificial in our giving to our great God. So I wanted to talk about that today instead, and I want to have you open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and you'll notice that this is from the life of David. Now, how many of you all love studying the life of David? Why is that? It's because David is such a complex individual. In fact, he's a lot like us. We're not simpletons and we're not simple kinds of people. We are complex. There's a There are things that happen in our minds and our hearts that are just so layered and sometimes we cannot figure out why we do what we do, even the most basic things in life. Isn't that right? Sometimes a dark cloud can come rolling into our lives and we we say, where in the world did that come from? And sometimes we make choices that we just go, are you kidding me, God? Where did that come from? And that's what we see in the life of David. That's why we like him so much. Because he's a lot like us. He gets it right a lot in his life, but sometimes he gets it so wrong that he breaks all ten of the Ten Commandments in one episode. I can relate to a guy like that, can't you? Because he's a lot like us. Well, the truth is, when you study the life of David, you see a lot about what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. If you were to look at 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you'd learn at least 10 lessons. I want to show these lessons to you, and I hope you have somewhere to write some of this down. But here's a couple things. Number one, we learn from the life of David that inward character is much more important than outward appearances, right? God looks at the heart. People look at the outside. 
We size each other up. God sees our heart. Here's a second lesson we learn about being a disciple. Facing and defeating giants is God's will for all of us. Not just for the brave, not just for the mighty, not, for, not just for the strong, but facing and defeating the giants in our life is for every single Christian. Here's a third lesson. We need godly friendships to face the challenges in this life. Life was not intended to be lived alone, and that's why David had Jonathan, Jonathan had David. These two loved each other and held each other accountable and walked the godly life together. Here's a fourth principle about disciple-making we learn from David. We are always training for reigning in this life for the life to come. Let me say it another way. Eternity to come is part of a continuum that began the moment Jesus captured your heart. And everything we're learning in this life is preparation for the life to come. It doesn't stop. It continues. I love that. Here's another principle, a fifth principle. We need to give God room to execute his plans in his way, in his time. Now, what's that story? That's the story of, of Nabal, whose name means fool. Can you imagine that mama naming her baby Nabal? He, his name means fool. And, and he disrespected David and his men. So what does David say? Okay, guys, put on your swords. We're going to go take out Nabal. If it weren't for the intervention of Abigail, who came alongside and said, don't do it, David would have made a terrible mistake and taken justice into his own hands. And God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to wait on him. Here's a sixth principle we learn about disciple-making from David. God loves it when we worship him wholeheartedly and unashamedly. Remember that day when the Ark of the Covenant on its second try finally made it to Jerusalem? Because on the first try, they disobeyed God. They didn't get it right. But on the second try, they got it right. And what does David do? He is so excited about this. He's, he's dressed down to his, well, to his bathing suit. We'll just say it that way. And he's dancing around. And he's so excited about the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God coming to this place in Jerusalem. That's unashamed worship. That's just letting it go. It's not looking around to see how other people are approaching God. No, no, it's being so enthralled with the living God that you just let it go. Here's another thing we learn about disciple-making. It's good to accept God's limits without doubting God's love. David, God says, you are to be a kingdom builder, not a temple builder. That's for someone else to do. In fact, it's going to be for your son to do. David, you have to accept my limits. And what does David do? He goes, okay, sure, I'm happy to do that. In fact, I'll make a way so that my son can be the one who builds the temple. Here's another lesson about disciple making. David teaches us that it's a wonderful gift to be invited to the king's table of grace. Remember that fellow's name we can hardly say, Mephibosheth? He is of the household of Saul, the son of Jonathan and, and David makes an invitation, extends a, a, an invitation of grace that says, is there anyone that I could bring to my table to sit at my table, listen, not just as a guest, but as a son. And Mephibosheth is that one who has no merit in himself, but David says it doesn't matter. I want to show grace to you, grace to the household of Saul. And David teaches us this lesson as disciples. Here's a ninth lesson we learn from the life of David. All of us 
are subject to temptation and failure and consequences of sin. At a time when kings go out to war, what happened? David stayed home. At a time when we are sitting and resting on our laurels of the advancement and the and the transformation God has caused in our lives, what can we do? We can get lazy. We can live a full life of, of, of making the right choices and get to be 60, 70 years old and make a decision to stay home when we should be in the battle. And the enemy comes and says, oh, I got you now. Anyone ever experienced that? Don't raise your hand on that one. Here's another lesson, and the final lesson I want you to see. If you were to study the life of David, no matter how godly our past, we can still make a mess of things in the present. Now, this is crazy. This brings us now to our time together in God's Word. The first part of the chapter, the first 17 verses, are, are rather interesting, 2 Samuel 24, because... Who knows how this happens? The, the, the Bible says that, that, that David is, um, is, is contemplating what he should do with his fighting men. And for some crazy reason, what does he do? He counts. He takes a census of how many fighting men he has. Now, why does he do it? We have no real clue. Perhaps it's because he is experience a little bit of pride. Maybe it's because he's not sure that God's going to continue to fight his battles. Maybe he's sizing up his army so he knows what, what assets he has to take on the enemies of God. For whatever reason, he numbers the fighting men, and guess what happens? Even though Joab says, please don't do this, and Joab's a very complex man too, don't do this, David does it, and the next thing happens, the Lord comes and says, okay, pick your poison. You've decided to count the fighting men. That's a, an act of arrogance. That's an act of, of rebellion against me. So I'm now going to show you the consequence of your sin. You choose which consequence you want. One consequence is you can choose three years of famine. Do you want that one? Secondly, you can choose three months of being chased by your enemies. Or third, you can choose three days of plague which will actually come from the hand of God. Which do you pick? Of course, because he knows that God's mercy is gracious and that God has a way of saying enough is enough, what does he do? He chooses the third. And those 70,000 people die in three days... David would rather entrust himself into the hands of his God than into the hands of his enemy or into the hands of impersonal famine. Now, listen, those are great lessons, aren't they, to learn about disciple-making? And I just now, you look, here's the thing. You don't have to do Bible study now. I just gave you two books of the Old Testament, and I've just summed them up for you. How about that? Thank you very much. But that's where we pick up the story today. And, and it's so interesting to me. We pick up the story, listen, about generosity, about sacrificial giving in the same chapter where Israel is experiencing this horrible judgment for David's, well, for David's counting of the fighting men. 
And that's where we want to look. So if you would, I don't know what your, your practice is, but if you wouldn't mind just standing in honor of God's Word, I'd like to read just the passage, the passage for us today, beginning at verse 17. So here's this thing happening, this judgment. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. And on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Arana looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, why has my lord, the king, come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arana said to David, Let my lord, the king, take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Arana gives all this to the king. And Arana also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Our Father, we pray that you'll take the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart and make them pleasing in your sight, O God. Father, would you show us something of sacrificial giving today from this great story? of David's response to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Now today, I'd like to offer to you, in the midst of this crazy story of God's discipline in the life of David, along with the many life lessons David would teach us if we looked at these, these, these two books, I'd like to offer to you a couple of insights about sacrificial giving. Because, you know, sacrificial giving doesn't come easy. It doesn't sometimes feel natural. In fact, some would say, he has the gift of generosity. I don't. I'm just a regular guy. I've got the gift of mercy or leadership or administration. No, the truth is God wants all of us to be like him in this matter. To be generous as he is generous. So there are four principles I'd like to share with you today. And I don't know if you have room in your notes to write it anywhere, but just uh, jot a couple things down. Here's the first principle. From this story, we learn that sometimes giving sacrificially to God means giving what is most valuable to you. Now, it's easy to miss this point. And if you look at verses 18 through 23, you might miss the point that the first person in this story who is remarkably generous is not David. 
The first person who is remarkably generous is this fella, Arana. Even though this threshing floor was his livelihood and his source of income, even though he had a vested interest in this property, and even though this was a property that had an amazing view, he was willing to do what? He was willing to give his stuff away at no price at all. Now, what do you think Arana's motivation was for doing such a thing? I have some theories because I can be a little cynical about things. Maybe uh, he was afraid of the king. I mean, a king showed up, and, and it's the middle of a plague, and here comes the king to talk to him. Maybe he's just afraid. Or maybe he felt a little bit coerced, like, like he was supposed to do this. Or maybe, just maybe, he had, her, he had other investment uh, properties in the area. We just don't know. But what's the best answer? Can I tell you what the best answer is? Why he was so motivated to give it away, to be so, so generous? Write this down. It's because he had an eternal view of things. He saw something that other people perhaps did not see. You see, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 20, we are told something additional than 2 Samuel 24. It says here, while Arana was threshing wheat, he turned and he saw the angel and also did his four sons who were with him. They hid themselves. And then David approached, and when Arana looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. Note this. Arana knew that there was more to life than what we see with the physical eyes. You see it? You see, in this moment, God kind of rolled back the curtain, as it were, from the visible to the invisible, and he let Arana see the killer angel. He was allowed to look into eternity and to the other side and see demons and angels and the invisible things that we don't see every day. And as he looked into these things, his worldview was changed. There's another world, he said. There's an eternal world, and the things that I hold in my hand are not the most important thing. What's most important is that there is a life that God sees that's invisible that continues forever. Let me ask you an honest question. Do you really believe in that unseen world that's eternal? Do you really? Do we really or are we so about this world that what we hold in our hands is all that we can see? Do we really believe, do we really believe that our life is but a vapor? That we're here today and we're gone tomorrow and, it, and, and the, the uncertainty of life is so, so real and so profound? Um. You know, on Facebook, I've reconnected with the class of 73. That's my high school graduating class. It's not the year I was born. I know you thought it was the other. <laughs> and you know, you know what happens? You know this. You know this. You know this, that, that every week there's someone in the class of 73 from Leighton High School, Utah, that's 
died. And I want to say to my Mormon friends where I grew up in Utah, I want to write the truth and say, what are y'all thinking about this? Because I must say, even we as Christians are clinging so tightly to what we can see that it makes, us, makes it difficult for us to be generous in what we're willing to give away. Remember what Jesus said about this in Matthew chapter 6? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus says something I wished he hadn't said. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's a second principle I want you to see here about generosity, about sacrificial giving, and it's this. Sometimes giving sacrificially to God means paying a price that's not required of you. Look again at verse 24, but the king replied, no, 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 listen, I know you want to give it to me, but I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David has an opportunity here to get something for nothing. And I just have to ask you, what does he say? I can't do it. I can't sacrifice to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. So beyond what he says, what does he do? This is important. He doesn't just say words, but he takes action. And he does this. It says he pays 50 shekels of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. But you know, back in Chronicles again, 1 Chronicles 21, it tells us more. It tells us that he pays 600 shekels of gold for the entire, well, for the entire site. And do you know what he bought that day? Let me show you. He bought the temple mount. He bought this huge place, this space where the Muslim Dome of the Rock is now. He bought this for 50 shekels of silver and 600 shekels of gold. Oh, what a space this is. And in fact, this world religion recognizes the holiness of the site. That's why they put the Dome of the Rock there. But where that Dome of the Rock is setting right now or nearby was where the temple once stood. Solomon's temple once stood right there. And thousands of years even before that, you know what else happened on this site? Abraham, Genesis 22 was willing to offer his son Isaac on this mount. And the angel stopped his hand and revealed that God is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. Isn't that interesting? That's what David bought. Significant, wouldn't you say? Now, what would you have done with such an offer? If someone had come to you and said, look, I'd like to give you this whole thing. I can imagine some of our responses. Some of us would have said, 
Great, I love free stuff. Some of you would have said, yes, it's Black Friday again. I love it. Some of you might have said, this is such an unbelievable bargain, Lord. Therefore, it must be your will. What would you have said? Would anyone among us had the awareness to say, I cannot give to God that which costs me nothing? It makes me think about this. What would you have been willing to pay to relieve the misery and suffering of an entire people group? What would you have been willing to pay to provide a space where God would tell you that he was going to show up and you could you could see the manifestation of his presence and glory. What would you be willing to pay for that? I think the answer is priceless. I love what David says here. I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. Let me ask it this way. What does your present practice of generosity communicate to God about what you think about God? Do you get the question? What does your present practice of being willing to only sacrifice that which costs you Tell God, communicate to God about your view of what you think about God. It's a very convicting question, is it not? Listen to what God says to us about sacrificial giving. And I I love these two passages. They changed my life, actually. Malachi 3.10 says it this, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Can you believe that God said that? And Listen, he said that to Old Testament people. Test me in this thing. Test me and see if I won't throw open the doors. What a verse. Now, some of you are saying, but that's Old Testament. Okay, I'll give you a New Testament one. Here you go. Luke 6, 38, I love this verse. It says, give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running all over. It will be poured into your lap. Watch this. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, let me make a confession. When I was, when I was a pastor, when I was, young, when I was a, a youth pastor, my youth pastor days, a long time ago, making $1,000 a month in the summer, or yeah, that was it, and 600 during the school year, it was just crazy, and I thought I was so rich. It was great. I mean, like $12,000 a year, yes, I love it. This is so great. But there was something about me that was kind of weird. I didn't get this giving thing early on, even as a pastor. And here was my thinking. I thought to myself, well, listen, I just have to persuade people to give, and that's my part of the giving. If they give, then it's off of me. And besides, Lord, I don't make that much money. And then I saw these two passages, and God convicted me. No, no, no. Listen, give of your first fruit. Don't give the leftovers. Give the first fruit. 
Trust God in this matter and see what happens. Test me, says the Lord. It'll it, it, be given to you the way, it's, the way you give. It's the standard you give. God will say, you know, I see your heart. Well, there was a moment in my senior pastor life where I almost decided to pull back. It was when I had two kids in college at the same time. And I could not believe how much money this was costing. It was just crazy. And the Lord convicted me, don't hold back. And I said, okay, I was tempted to, but I'm not going to. And I just, I tried my very best. We had to take a little loan out for college and all that sort of thing. But here's the crazy thing. My daughter went into the financial counselor after her freshman year, her beginning of her sophomore year, and she explained her situation financially to the financial counselor who happened to be a believer, and there weren't many believers in the school she went to. And the guy says, so tell me again about your family. My dad's a pastor. He goes, oh, well, your, your, your dad is, you know, part of his world is, is giving, right? She goes, yes, sir, it is. He goes, well, listen, we, we need to change things here. And here's what he did. He lowered her tuition payment in her sophomore year, and watch this, he then made a request which was agreed upon by the university to refund us tuition from her freshman year. Can you believe that? I'm persuaded about generosity. There's a third principle I want you to see, and it's this. Always giving sacrificially to God expresses trust in who he is and his purposes. Look at verse 25. And David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. Now, the writer of Chronicles gives us a few more details yet again, and it says... David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And he called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. And then the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back into his sheath. And at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. Now, what we should take away here is that David always trusted God. He, he's the fellow that says, you know, this lion and this bear tried to threaten my sheep. I, I took him by the beard and I took him out. He's the guy that was punished by a guy that was jealous of him named Saul for all of his young adult life, and yet he continued to trust the Lord. He's a guy that wrote psalms that say things like this. Those who know your name will trust in you, Lord, because you've never forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. Psalm 56 says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you and God, whose word I praise and God I trust. I will not be afraid. And then here's one, Psalm 118, 8 says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in politicians. Oh, princes. Same thing. Psalm 125, 1 says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, who cannot be shaken but endures forever. 
You see, David has the same eternal perspective that Arana has. When he says in Psalm 49, don't be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases. For he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. But while he lived, he counted himself blessed. And men praise you when you prosper. No, no, he's going to join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has, watch this, riches without understanding is like the beast that perish. And that's what David sees here. David sees the connection between sacrificial giving, generosity, and trust. Because he trusts God, he is willing to be incredibly generous. And that leads us to a fourth and final principle, and here it is. Most often, Giving sacrificially to God, watch this, is for the benefit of others, not for ourselves. Look again at verse 25. David built an altar to the Lord there, sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague was lifted. Now, who is blessed by Arana's and David's generosity? Well, apparently, the people who were suffering under the plague were blessed by their generosity. God was blessed by their generosity, and at the end of the day, so were David and Arana, but they were the last to be blessed. The first to be blessed were other people. And here's the thing. David's generosity does not stop here. He continues to give to God for the sake of God and for others, not for himself. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, 5, David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all nations. But remember, I'm the kingdom builder, not the temple builder. So what does David do? Therefore, I will make preparations for the temple taking great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord, a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron, too great to be weighed, and wood and stone. And then he, so he says this interesting comment, and you may add to them. Like what? You have many workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, as well as men skilled in every kind of work, in gold and silver, bronze and iron, craftsmen beyond number. Now begin the work, and the Lord will be with you. And then David ordered that all the leaders of Israel help his son Solomon. Listen again. David is giving his wealth. David is being generous towards God, not for the benefit of himself but for the benefit first of God and people who will come later. He blesses Solomon, his son. All who built the temple were blessed. Future people who would come and enjoy the presence of God in the temple, they were blessed. And we living today are blessed by the story of generosity. So, I know you were convinced about worship already. I hope you are as convinced about generosity. Because there's one more thing I need to say, and it's this. When you think about 
all the examples you've seen in your life of generosity displayed. Think about some of the people you've been around and how remarkable they are and, and how they can just give and give and give. I mean, you could, you could, bring, you could bring names. We could, so I could say, who do you know? You could shout them out right now. And maybe, maybe you would even say, well, you know what? God's given me that gift too. I, I have it. But there's one person who stands above it all as an example of generosity, and here it is. Who is it? What's the answer? What's always the answer? Jesus. I heard, a, I heard a little kids in Sunday school was listening to the Sunday school teacher saying, what's furry and has a, a tail and, and, and likes nuts and climbs trees? And, and the, the little kid raised their hand. They said, teacher, I, 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 I know that it sounds like a squirrel, but I think the answer is Jesus. No, in this case, the answer really is Jesus. Because let me show you the points again. Who do we know that gave away what was most valuable? Who do we know that paid a price that was not required for his own sake? Who do we know that expressed trust in the one who is Father? Who is the one who gave, who gave for the benefit of others? Jesus. And here's what I want to say to you as I close. It's easy for me to assume that because you are here, you have been captivated by the grace and mercy of God. That you're because you're here, you, 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 you want to honor God with your life and your, and your living and with your choices. But it's also true to say someone might have come today and they have never reflected on the generosity of their God who sent his one and only Son to stand in our place, to give his life away, his perfect life in our place, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Listen, can I tell you, that's the message of Christmas. If there's anyone here that, have, that has never felt the Spirit of God come upon you and show you something more, that there's a life he has for you that begins with the forgiveness of your sins and then grows into the offering of your life as a generous sacrifice, a living sacrifice display of his grace. Today could be the day of salvation for you. And then I would say to the rest, where did we lose our zeal, our love, for the living God. Why do we hold back on things that are so important that are reflected actually in his character? Listen, to be generous is to be like God. Our Father, we praise you for your presence here, your love, 
We thank you for this incredible story from David's life of your grace and kindness. Father, I pray that you would show us afresh what it means to trust you, to be willing to give sacrificially to your purposes and to your character, God, to who you are, believing that you'll supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory. Father, for the one who does not yet know saving grace, we pray that it would be kindled in the heart a belief in you, Lord Jesus, that you have come for that one to give your life for their life, an acknowledgement, a spoken word that says, I believe Jesus in you as my Redeemer. And for all the rest who have prayed and sought you with their whole heart, we pray, God, this day you would help us to consider what it looks like to be generous with the gifts you've given us, with our time, our talents, our resources. Oh, God, free us to see that there's another world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.